You are listening to the Left Right Forward Show with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Enjoy the show. Welcome. You're listening to Left Right Forward Business and Political Solutions, and I'm your host, Ambassador Delano Lewis. I have a very, very special guest today, one that I've known for all of his life. It's my, my oldest son, uh, Delano Lewis Jr., known as Del, Del Lewis. And he's just written a new book, uh, and we're going to be talking about that uh, during this podcast. But we're going to get to know Del Lewis Jr. a lot better uh, in the meantime. So I want to welcome to Left Right Forward, uh, Del Lewis Jr. Welcome, Del. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, before we talk about your book, which I love your title, which is Get Your Ship Together, <laughs> Charting a Course to True Wealth, uh, I want to start from the beginning. I know some of these answers, but I don't know them from your perspective. Uh, so I'm going to ask questions that I have some familiarity with, but I want to hear it from you. And that is, where did you grow up? And how was your growing up? And the neighborhood and all the things of that sort. So we can get to know you a little bit better. <clears throat> sure. Um, well, so, and what I'm about to say, I want everybody to know that I'm not saying this simply because I'm being interviewed by my father, but simply because it's the truth. Um, I had a phenomenal childhood, um, and uh, the way that I was brought up and the family that I was born into um, couldn't, say, couldn't say more about. Um, so just want to set that, uh, set that stage. Thank um, you. I was born. Uh, you are welcome. Uh, 100% true. And I uh, couldn't ask for anything more. Um, born in Kansas, um, so I guess technically I am a native Kansan, which <laughs> my parents will oftentimes remind me of. That's for sure. Um, but we moved to the D.C. area when I was two. Um, and then we had a few um, different locations uh, from the time that I was two until the time that I was about nine, which we can talk about a little later. But I spent pretty much my formative years growing up, um, my... Um, my young, young adolescence and my early teens, all the way up to college uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, in the northwest area of D.C., uh, in an area called Chevy Chase. Well, that's right. And, and I do want to talk about the earlier points, uh, the earlier years, because I think it just lends so much to uh, our background, both your mom and dad and, and, and you. And that is that you were born the first year of my law school days. So... Uh, that was momentous in and of itself. I just started law school, had been married for a very short time, and uh, found out that uh, the baby was coming. So the first year of law school, uh, Dell Jr. was born, and that was in Topeka, Kansas, uh, when I was at Washburn Law. And then what Dell mentioned earlier that I'd like to hear his views on is that I had two jobs in the federal government, and justice and EEOC, but I also took a job with the Peace Corps as Peace Corps staff. And went to Nigeria, and Dell was, I think, about how old? Dell, maybe five. I think I was five. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me yep. about that. And I was in Nigeria as a director, and then Uganda as country director for the Peace Corps. So those were your earliest years, and uh, talk about that. Well, as anybody that's listening to this might be able to imagine, um, as a five-year-old American who's only had American experiences. Um, to have their father come home one day 
and say that the family is moving to Africa, um, it can be somewhat of a shock. Um, so as a five-year-old, um, I stereotypically thought that um, there was a good chance we were going to get eaten by tigers and lions. Right. Um, but they didn't so have tigers, like, and you found out in your in your studies later that they didn't have tigers in Africa. That's right. <laughs> yes, exactly. But as I said, I was a five-year-old stereotypic American. Right. Uh, so, so that was my thought process. Um, but as we started to talk about, and again, I, as, you know, I talk about uh, my parents and, and the way that they went about parenting. Um, as we started to talk about where we were going, um, what that looked like, what it was going to look like, what the things were that we could possibly see and do, uh, I just became more and more excited about the possibility of going on that adventure. Um, I will say, though, that um, it was tempered to a great degree by the fact, and I know this is my, you know, my memory playing tricks on me, because I'm sure this wasn't exactly the case, but I want to swear that we went down to the State Department every day for two weeks solid and got a different shot. <laughs> Vaccination. That's, That's not too far off. <laughs> so... Uh, we were poked with all sorts of needles before we got on that plane. That's for sure. Not uh, that, That's not too far off. I'd, <laughs> I'd forgotten that, but go ahead. And speaking uh, of the plane. You know, I'd forgotten where you were, the, the times where you actually held me down so that they could get that <laughs> next shot into my arm or into my rear end. I know. Um, but uh, I haven't forgotten them for sure. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And, and speaking of the plane, do you remember what airline it was? I don't remember 100%, but I believe it was TWA. No, it was Pan Am. It was Pan Am, okay. <laughs> Which is no longer. Um, we must have come back on TWA. Yeah, I we think had, we might have. I'll never forget those red TWA bags, um, <laughs> the carry-on bags that we had. Right. You know, air, air travel has changed so much in the last several years. They used to give you all sorts of stuff, no matter what class you were traveling in. But I remember those TWA bags. Well, yeah, I think you're quite right. I think we did come back TWA, but we were heading to Nigeria, uh, to Benin City, and he had two younger brothers uh, along as well. They were, I think, three and two. And that's right. That's right. right. So you, Are you sure I had younger brothers? I thought I was the only child. <laughs> no, you did. <laughs> you may have acted like that over time, but no, you did. You did. And then you had another one later. So that's another part of the story. But re- right. the reason I mentioned Pan Am is because for our listeners, we're talking to uh, Del Lewis Jr. And he's uh, written a new book uh, that we're going to get to. Uh, and he's talking about his early childhood. And the reason I mentioned Pan Am 150, because in those days who people traveled, and if you traveled overseas, Pan Am 150 was probably the only airline that went uh, to the continent. And they went to Senegal, and then they went to uh, Ivory Coast, then to Ghana, then to Nigeria. So you had all of those stops from New York uh, on the continent. So it was a, it was a listen. You were pretty young. Uh, you probably don't remember those particular stops, but um, that, that's, you know, a little bit of trivia. <laughs> mm, <yep>. Amazing. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Nigeria, if you can recall, and then uh, uh, Uganda as well. Um, you know, I don't remember a, a whole lot um, about Nigeria, except that, um, I mean, it truly was uh, a different world. Mm-hmm. Um and um, I remember um, seeing uh, 
a whole lot of poverty. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I can't honestly say that I had a perception of poverty before we left and went uh, to Nigeria. Mm-hmm. But um, you, just, you just saw people, you saw people actually with no clothes on. They didn't have any clothes at all. I mean, let, let alone being homeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, no clothes that were just on the street um, and, uh, you know, just the way that they looked. Um, and I also remember, um, again, as, as a five-year-old, um, that everybody smelled differently. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and again, I'll never forget, um, and I think that this is a part of, uh, one of the wonderful parts of my upbringing, how my mom described to me that that, you know, because oftentimes you think they smell different, and you think, well, then they're, they're different or, or they're less than you or somehow because they don't smell the way you think they should smell. And, right. and she described to me that um, it was because of their diet primarily, mm-hmm. um, because of what they typically ate, and that human beings uh, tend to smell differently based upon what they eat. So what we ate in the United States, we all kind of smelled the same, and they smelled entirely different. And that just gave me a whole different perspective on the world. It gave me a whole different perspective on people. Uh, and how to treat people, and um, I'm just so grateful that, um, that that she was able to talk to a five-year-old that way to give um, him that learning so early on. Well, that's that's very very good and helpful. Uh, also, you know, you know, you were a five-year-old, so I think that's what I wanted our listeners to hear. But if we bring that fast forward for people who travel today. Yeah, and I, I'm sure you would then look at things differently and say, and you have traveled the world, uh, that uh, poverty is uh, relevant, uh, relative. Uh, what I thought might have been poverty was a, a cultural difference. And what I thought about was a different smell was the fact that uh, people don't uh, do hygiene as we do hygiene. So there are cultural differences and there's no deodorant available or soaps available or whatever. So those were differences that you wouldn't know as a five-year-old. And now you look back and say, these are just cultural differences. And it doesn't mean it's any less or any, any, any worse or whatever. Yep. So, Absolutely. Uh, and you went to school, though. You weren't in school at that time, but you did go to school in Uganda. Am I correct? Uh, yes, but if I'm not mistaken, I went to school f- briefly in Nigeria as well. Okay. We had to double check with mom on that. Right. Um, she would remember. I believe I went to school briefly um, in Nigeria, and, and I believe it was Nigeria where another thing that was an indelible on my memory. Um, I was learning how to read, and, and we were in class, and I was reading, and um, there was uh, the, the, the part of the text of the book was sort of like it was, you know, beginning to learn, so it was kind of that sort of the see John run, see spot run, but it was <laughs> see the blank go up the hill, and there was this word that I just didn't know. I couldn't pronounce it. It didn't make any sense to me. I had never heard it or seen it before. And the teacher said to me, she said, well, if, you know, in a situation like that, look at the picture, because the picture will oftentimes help you with what the word is. So I looked at the picture, and I said, see the truck go up the hill. (laughs) And, um, you know, this was the British school system, and I I will say that it wasn't like she wrapped me on the knuckles, but it felt that way. The look that she gave me (laughs) and the way that she called me out in the middle of the class and told me that that was entirely wrong. (laughs) Well... It turns out the word was Lori. Lori, that's right. 
<laughs> and a lorry is a truck in the in the British or United Kingdom vernacular. Right. And so <laughs> I did what she said. I looked at the picture and I saw a truck it's going a truck. up the hill. <laughs> uh, but it turned out to be a lorry. So my uh, my tenure in the Nigerian schools didn't last too long. I think mom brought me home after that and, <laughs> and sort of did a little homeschool at that point. Oh, that's incredible. Then and then in Uganda, you were in a, a an American school, I think. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, and that was a great experience. Right. Yeah. Well, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it unless you have any other memories that you'd like to share about your early uh, African travels. Uh, we can move on. Uh, and we came back in 69 and uh, uh, lived in Chevy Chase, and, and uh, one area of Chevy Chase, and then we moved to another where we bought a home, and that's where you spent some formative years, so you might want to talk about that. Uh, yeah, and so I just need to go back because I think um, how we came back in 1969 mm. is such an important part of oh, my life. Good, good, good. Um, yes, yes. And uh, such an important part of of the book. Um, <laughs> we came back to the United States after um, actually having a wonderful, very long extended vacation uh, throughout Europe. We left Africa and went to Europe uh, and spent time in several countries in Europe traveling around um, which was a phenomenal experience for a, a nine-year-old at the time. Um, and then uh, we boarded uh, what was at the time uh, the largest and fastest passenger ship in the world, uh, the, the SS United States. That's and um, I'll never forget that experience. And uh, it's just had, uh, and in many ways, uh, has shaped my life going forward. But uh, we spent four days crossing the Atlantic from La Havre, France, uh, to New York City, um, and it was uh, just an incredible experience. And that was actually her last Atlantic crossing um, before she was laid up. That's amazing. Before Dell Jr. moves forward, uh, we're talking to Dell Lewis Jr., who's written a book uh, called Get Your Ship Together, uh, and he's recalling his early experiences and traveling from uh, La Havre, France, uh, on the SS United States. And for our listeners, just give me a little bit of a flavor uh, I was a not a diplomat, but I was on a U.S. assignment as a Peace Corps director coming from a uh, country director of Uganda for the Peace Corps. And I was entitled because uh, we had four kids. Uh, he had a younger brother, Phil, born uh, in Uganda. So four boys and the two of us. So six of us, uh, according to State Department rules, we were we were allowed three staterooms. I don't know if you knew that, Dell, and uh, but we chose that we didn't need three; that we would take two staterooms. So yes, we had this wonderful experience on the SS United States in two staterooms, uh, uh, traveling uh, from France back to uh, to our country, uh, uh, docking in uh, New York City. So go ahead from there. Uh, yeah. So and then as you said, um, we came back and settled uh, in Chevy Chase, D.C. Um, the first house that we had there was on Inglemar Street, um, and just uh, just a wonderful uh, neighborhood area to grow up in. We were a couple blocks away from the local playground, and uh, we'd ride our bikes all over the place and skateboard and skate and um, and went to school. Actually, not too far. Went to public school first um, there in Washington D.C. and not too far from where we were. So I was able to either walk to school or take the bus and. Um, it's a great experience growing up there. And Lafayette, uh, Lafayette was an elementary school, public school, and they had in Northwest D.C. 
just a few blocks from our house, and they had this unbelievable playground, and uh, it was supervised by, I think, uh, District of Columbia Recreation. And our boys, and Dell can talk about it, uh, had a marvelous experience uh, becoming counselors and uh, being a part of the playground, but becoming counselors for others, kids in the neighborhood. And that was a big, big plus for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was... It was like the central hub, I mean, for, for all of us kids. I mean, literally from age 6 to 20, uh, if you were in that neighborhood, that was the place where everybody congregated um, at that playground, and there was always something going on. I mean, that's where I learned to play basketball, where I learned to play football, baseball. Um, and as you said, in the summertime, they did a day camp uh, for the, the, you know, the residents there, for the kids. And... Um, when you, I think it's when you turned 13, you were eligible to be a junior counselor, and so that's when I started there at age 13, being the junior counselor, and then I worked my way up to counselor, and that was really my first job. Oh, that's uh, but it was a great experience. That's amazing. And uh, you went to Annunciation uh, Catholic School, and then um, on to high school, which we'll tell our listeners uh, about your high school days, which I think probably, I know for us, it was uh, an incredible experience, and I think same for you. Oh, yeah, it was. It was. And um, so I, I very proudly tell people that I'm a, I'm a graduate of Gonzaga College High in Washington, D.C., downtown Washington, D.C., uh, not far from Capitol Hill. Um, and just a, uh, a phenomenal um, education. Um, I'll always uh, have a great deal of respect and love for the Jesuits, um, that order of priests, and um, the way that they teach um, and the way that they bring education into uh, young men's lives. It was an all-boys uh, Catholic school. The, the D.C. Catholic school system was predominantly um, single-sex, so you had all-girls Catholic schools and all-boys Catholic schools. And I remember when I went off to college telling people that I'd gone to an all-boys school, they were just like, oh, my God, that just has been so horrible. How did you meet girls? And I said, you know what? I am willing to bet and guarantee that I know more girls having gone to an all-boys school than you knew going to a co-ed school. Because in a co-ed school, your environment is basically your school. So if you've got 300, 400, 1,000 people there who you're there. In D.C., the Catholic school, high school system, and this single-sex system was incredible because you had like four or five predominant Catholic boys' schools and four or five predominant Catholic girls' schools. And so we're talking thousands of people that would come together with that sort of common bond. And so I met uh, so many incredible people through that experience. Yes, yeah, so, uh, this was Gonzaga College High School uh, in uh, uh, very near Capitol Hill. Um, I guess it was Northwest. Uh, it, was it uh, Northwest? Uh, it, was, it was Northwest. Yeah, um, it was Northwest, yeah. But it was uh, right near the, the old post office, right near uh, Capitol Hill. But uh, the Jesuits made a commitment, and Dale talked about uh, his association with the, the Jesuit priests. They made a commitment to stay in D.C. proper. Uh, and to bring uh, young boys from uh, Maryland and Virginia. And when there were uh, racial difficulties and issues uh, and people would move to the suburbs for one reason or another, the Jesuits made a commitment to stay uh, in D.C. And I think uh, I've always been proud of them for that. And then Dell can tell you that he probably, that high school probably has an alumni group that would uh, – 
uh, put a college to shame in terms of their support and and and, and influence. Uh, talk a little bit oh, about absolutely. Gonzaga. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Well, it's been around forever. I mean, <laughs> I'll need to look this up to be sure, but if I'm not mistaken, I believe that next year may be their 200th anniversary. Wow. I believe that they started down there in 1821. Mm, my goodness. Uh, it's amazing. Um, yeah. And had so, a tremendous track uh, record. So mm-hmm. so from high school, what, what did you think about uh, about college, and, and what were your choices? What were you thinking about? Um, well, you know, you're, you're kind of opening the door for me to tell one of what I think is sort of my key stories uh, in my life. It's a fun story to tell, but it's specifically about this idea of going to college. Um, I had done... <laughs> fairly well um, in high school. I wasn't at the tip-top of my class, but I, you know, I had done very well in high school, and I was, I was an athlete and had good, good academics. Um, I'll speak to and, that. You certainly were. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, oh, thank you. Um, and I, um, but, you know, I, was, I had this fear. It was, I was deathly afraid of going off to a typical four-year college spending four years there, having a great time, as I always heard everybody did when they were in college, <laughs> graduating, and then um, being relegated to what I thought was the doldrums of a nine-to-five job. Right. And I just that just scared me to death. I just didn't want to do that. I thought that was going to be the most boring thing uh, in the world. Uh, however, I had also sort of realized that I probably needed um, a college degree and a college education uh, to support myself um, the way I had been accustomed to being supported by my wonderful parents. Um, and so to continue to live this wonderful lifestyle that I had on my own, I was probably going to need a college degree. But this became a conundrum for me because I just really didn't want, did not want to go off to a traditional college um, and spend uh, four years there and then get a quote-unquote nine-to-five job. Now, I in a sense know that there are a lot of quote-unquote nine-to-five jobs that are extremely exciting, and I've learned that. But as a 17-year-old kid, I wasn't quite there yet. Um, And I was receiving a lot of letters um, from a number of different universities, and actually some of them fairly uh, prestigious. And um, they all started out this way. They all started out by saying, you are an outstanding minority student. And that just burned me up, because in my mind, um, and the way that I was raised by my parents and our, in, in our family, um, I did not consider myself a minority. I considered mm-hmm. myself a person, right. and I considered myself a student. And um, why couldn't somebody just recognize me for being an outstanding student and invite me to the university? Mm-hmm. So um, probably not the smartest thing in the world, but all those letters promptly promptly went into the trash, and I didn't pay any attention to any of those schools. Um, But one day, uh, I came home from high school and went through the mail, and there were the usual host of letters there, and opened up several of them and saw the same thing, threw them right in the trash. But there was this letter from um, this institution called the United States Merchant Marine Academy. Um, which I had really never heard of before, had no idea what it was, but I opened up the letter, and the letter said, you are an outstanding student. Right. And that got my attention, and started to look into the organization, um, realized that it was one of the nation's five federal academies, and I always like to have fun with, you know, with people and 
So can you name the five federal academies? They can usually name three. Right. Uh, West Point, the Army, you know, uh, Naval Academy at Annapolis, the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Every now and then they can uh, they can figure out the Coast Guard Academy, which is in Connecticut, <laughs> but they almost never come up with the Merchant Marine Academy, which is in New York. Um, right. But it is one of the five federal academies, um, and you go there on a complete government scholarship. You, it's a federal appointment by a congressional appointment um, to get there, and and it's uh, rigorous academics and very rigorous to get in. So um, the more I looked at it, though, about what they did, um, it was very exciting to me because you had the prestige of going to a federal military academy. Um, and when you got out, you actually went into private enterprise. You did not go into active duty in one of the armed forces. You went reserve in one of the armed forces, but you didn't go active duty. So I said, my gosh, this this could be the best of all worlds. This could be what I'm looking for. I can get the college degree. I have the prestige of going to one of these federal academies. Um, and when I come out, uh, I'm not going to be doing a nine-to-five job behind a desk, because what you do when you come out <laughs> is ideally you go off to sea. Um, and so uh, I applied, um, received my congressional appointment, um, and uh, ultimately was accepted, um, and then we were off to Kings Point, New York. Before, yeah, before you go on, I mean, that's a, that's a tremendous story. Um, that appointment came from um, Delegate Walter Fontroy, and on many of my other podcasts, I've talked about politics, and I've talked about the District of Columbia being the last colony, and they have a non-voting delegate to Congress. Well, one of the powers, he had some powers just like all the other congresspersons, and that was the power to nominate persons to the military academies. And Walter Fontroy nominated uh, Dell Lewis Jr. to the Merch Marine Academy, and uh, the, as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> uh, yes, and, and what and what... You'll probably remember, if I jog your memory, Dad, is that, um, you know, my father, um, being the astute business person that he is and um, the incredible planner that he is, is always um, what we used to call in the banking world belts and suspenders, right? So it's like you've got sort of two two strategies there, right? you got your belt and you got your suspenders. And, well, he realized that um, because the District of Columbia was not a state, um, it didn't have any senators. Um, um, it only had this non-voting delegate. That also the mayor of Washington D.C. had nominating powers to the federal academies. So uh, just as uh, belt and suspenders uh, <laughs> action, uh, my wonderful father arranged for me to also be interviewed and then subsequently, subsequently uh, receive an appointment from the mayor of Washington D.C., who at the time was Marion Barry. So uh, I went up to Kings Point uh, with a status that most of my classmates didn't have. <laughs> I actually had two federal appointments to the academy. Oh, that's a that's a great story because it, it just it just folds into uh, many of the other podcasts that I've had talking about D.C. politics and uh, my closeness to then Mayor uh, Marion Barry, and also I worked for Delegate Walter Fontroy when he was first elected as his chief of staff, and, and to have both of those come home to a, a nomination for my son, the oldest son, who had qualified, but they had to nominate him, and he had to pass muster through them uh, to Kings Point. So we were very, very proud, and I remember those days at uh, Kings Point when you went uh, and I think uh, those first two weeks, uh, 
uh, as a plebe, uh, you have no contact with the outside. I know you didn't have any contact with your parents. And that was really something to have our first child go off to this military academy that we were very proud. But I didn't have any idea where, where he was, what he was up to, what's going on. And uh, anyway, that, that's from my, your father's perspective. And I'm sure you had a different experience as a plebe. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you think it was tough for you. <laughs> so how was that first year? I, mean, I should say that uh, first couple of weeks. First couple of weeks, um, you know, they get you up there, and this is before the academics start, and you're just going through all of this physical endurance, and they're, they're literally verbally beating you up sort of 24-7. Um, and we'd get up at 4.45 in the morning, and... Um, uh, the showers that we were allowed to take were only lasted about 30 seconds or a minute if you actually had a luxury. They weighed you through that, and then it was just, um, it was just, it was, it was an incredible experience. And as we all like to say, those of us that graduated from Kings Point for sure, and I think probably the other federal academies, is it's a wonderful place to be from. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, while you're in it, it's a little bit of a different story. Um, but the interesting thing was that um, as grueling as that was physically and mentally, um, it really paled in comparison to the academics. And when we mm. got into the academic year, which for us at the academy was 11 months long. Wow. Um, and uh, we had four quarters, and I was taking credit-wise per quarter what many of my other high school classmates that had gone off to these other universities were uh, taking per semester. Uh, mm-hmm. I can remember one quarter I had 27 credits that I was taking in one quarter. Um, and so they, they really piled it on. Um, but uh, but the, the, what they taught you was absolutely invaluable um, as a person because there was a lot of leadership that they taught you. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, as well as the academics. And so I graduated there um, as a marine engineer. And um, just, uh, just an incredible experience. And it gave you a way to think, too, which I'm, which I'm very appreciative of. Well, I have two comments about it as your father and uh, watching that ex- experience from, from afar. Uh, two things that come to mind. One, uh, you had a great business uh, instructor because when we visited the, ca- the campus, uh, met some of your teachers, I remember... Uh, that your business instructor told us that uh, you were going to go far in business. Uh, you had a great mm-hmm. business aptitude, and I remember that coming from your business professor. And the second thing I'd like for you to talk about, which I thought was incredible from King's Point, is the practicality of training uh, uh, marine engineers that you spend of your, of your years at the academy, you spend so many years, so many months at sea. And so you had practical experience. So talk about those things. Yeah, that, that's probably the reason why um, the academics was so rigorous was because they essentially had to fit in a four-year degree. And actually, when I graduated and started to talk to some of my other high school classmates who had gone on to other colleges and majored in engineering, many of them were doing this in five years. So mm-hmm. what King's Point had to do was take a four- to five-year education and to fit it into three years because we actually spent a year over the four years that we were there we spent a year at sea i spent half of my sophomore year um, which is known 
in the academy parlance as my third class year mm-hmm. and half of my junior year, which is known in the academy parlance as my second class year, um, I spent those uh, each of those two six-month periods actually out at sea. And um, that was just an incredible experience. And unlike the other academies, like the Naval Academy, the, they take their um, midshipmen and they go out on a school ship where all of the midshipmen are together on one school ship. They go out for just a couple of months. I actually spent six, year, six months out at sea with just one other Kings Point classmate aboard an actual mer- working merchant vessel. Wow. So I was out there with the men and women. Um, unfortunately, at that time, it was just primarily men. But the people out there that were the professional mariners, and that's, that was another part of our campus. The Kings Point actually had the model that the world is our campus. Well, I have a great story to tell you, our listeners. We're talking to Del Lewis, Jr., who's written a new book called Get Your Ship Together, Charting a Course to True Wealth. And I just came back from a very prestigious dinner in Washington called the Alfalfa Club Dinner, and I think Dell has been there with me on at least one occasion. And I met uh, an owner of a shipping company. Uh, I think it was the Armand Hammer Shipping Company, or it might have been Occidental, by the name of Bill McSweeney. And Mr. McSweeney is an Alfalfa Club member, and every year I see him, he tells me, give Dell Jr. my best because he saved our ship. And he told that story, Dell. I must to tell you, I told him that you had written a book, and he certainly wants a copy. But he, he told the story again that you were on the ship uh, as a cadet uh, from the Merchant Academy and noticed that the um, – the, uh, what was it? The the the, buoy, the the lifeboats. The lifeboats. Thank you. The lifeboats uh, were not quite up to speed, and that you had uh, alerted the ship uh, captain to this effect. And uh, you can tell that story. But McSweeney said you saved the ship. <laughs> uh, it's so it's so interesting you say that because we you know, we were talking just briefly a week or so ago, and you were telling me a little bit about Alfalfa, and I. Meant to ask you if if Mr. McSweeney was still there because yep. I know he's getting he's getting along in years. So aren't we all? But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we all are. But I uh, didn't know if he was still there. Um, and so, just a little bit more background on that. Um, it was um, Occidental Petroleum was the organization that owned these ships. As, mm-hmm. as people were probably aware, Oxy is big into chemicals and a number of other things, but. They had built ships so that they could transport their chemicals around the world. And if I'm not mistaken, um, in Arm and Hammer's heyday, who was the owner and creator of Occidental Petroleum, mm-hmm. uh, Bill McSweeney was kind of like his right-hand person. I think you're right. Um, so uh, he was in that uh, C-suite right next to Mr. Hammer. Uh, but anyway, the, they had built three ships, um, the Oxy producer, the Oxy grower, and the Oxy trader. And um, I was a cadet. Um, my third class year, the f- first year I'd gone out to sea, uh, aboard the Oxy Producer. And um, I actually took the pr- producer right out of the shipyard. I actually went to Avondale Shipyard in New Orleans um, and got her before she had even made her maiden voyage. And I actually wow. sailed on her, on her maiden voyage. Uh, and we went, uh, we loaded our cargo in Jacksonville, Florida, and transversed across the Atlantic, the Mediterranean, into the Black Sea. Um, and went to Odessa, which at that time in the early 80s was still part of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was during that crossing that um, uh, my fellow cadet and I 
uh, A.J. Murphy were uh, sent up to lifeboats to just give them the overall inspection. Um, and as we were doing that, we happened to notice that the gasoline, the gas tanks, because these were um, these lifeboats were um, engine propelled as well, hmm. um, actually had a fair amount of water in them. Wow! And um, so we alerted the chief engineer, who alerted the captain. He says, "Well, you know, let's let's rectify that situation." So we pumped them out, got them all cleaned up, got them refueled um, with the with the proper mixture of of, of pure fuel. Um, and sort of went about our merry way. We went into Odessa. Actually, a little side story there, we actually got stuck at Anchorage uh, in Odessa. They wouldn't let us into the port. Um, and that's a whole other story I can tell your, your listeners about later. But we, we turned out we were three weeks late. I was three, late, three weeks late getting back to school. So if you can imagine a 10-week quarter that has all the credits that I just talked about in it, and now I'm starting three weeks behind everybody else when I got back. But that's a whole different story. My goodness. Um, but um, on the producers, the Oxy producers' second voyage, um, my fellow classmates, um, who it was their turn to go out to sea while I was at school, they were assigned aboard um, the Oxy producer, and she got caught in a very violent storm in the Mediterranean. And people don't really realize how rough the Mediterranean Sea can be, um, got caught in a very violent storm in the Mediterranean, and, um, and this is also possible, the ship actually split in two. Wow. Um, and um, fortunately, all the crew was able to get onto the stern half of the ship where the lifeboats were. They were able to lower the lifeboats, get everybody off safely, and then they were eventually rescued by another ship. But um, had those lifeboats not had uh, the proper fuel in them, um, that would have been an entirely different story for those that were trying to get off and trying to get rescued. So that's what Bill McSweeney usually tells the story about. Well, he's certainly right, and he's very, very proud. He tells that story every time I see him, which is usually (laughs) once a year. And it is a true story, and it's a credit to you and your classmates and King's Point for the training that you received. And one last story, as your father, I do remember when uh, your mom and I went to visit you when you were at you were out at sea, but you were going to be docking at a port in North Carolina, if I remember. And mom and I visited you there, and you took us down to where you live in the in the bowels of the ship. And I said to you, and you, sh- and you pointed out all of this equipment and all of these pipes and all of this stuff down there, uh, the, the engine of a ship, you knew every piece of it. And I said, Dell, where did you, how do you know all of this? You said, Dad, I'm in the Merchant Marine Academy. That's how I know. <laughs> I was very impressed. Very impressed. Do you remember that? I do remember that. I do remember that. And I, and I have to say that, in addition to having you and Mom aboard, which was a true honor, um, if you recall, we also had uh, Nana aboard. Oh, that's my right. grandmother, my mom's mom. Right, sure did. She was with you guys, and so it was great to have her there and to to share that experience with her. But I, I do remember that. I remember giving you the tour of the ship. Yes, it was a it was fantastic. I was so impressed. So listen, we're talking to Del Lewis Jr., who's written a book, uh, "Get Your Ship Together," and we're learning about his career not only from Gonzaga High School to the Merchant Marine Academy, but his time at sea as a cadet. Uh, but then 
what happens when you left King's Point uh, on this shipping uh, odyssey? Were you, uh, what were your requirements at that point, and uh, what was life like? What, were, what, what, what did you plan to do? Uh, yeah, so um, as I had mentioned earlier, um, we all had an obligation. Anybody that goes to a federal academy has an obligation, and those obligations tend to change a little bit over the years based upon what the, um, what the country needs in terms of us for, for us to do. But my obligation at the time was to accept a commission in the, one of the Armed Forces Reserves. And one of the, the neat things about Kings Point, and if there are any listeners on the phone that um, have children or grandchildren that are of the college age, um, I would strongly recommend that they consider looking at Kings Point, especially if they're looking at any of the other federal academies. The neat thing about Kings Point was that I had the option of accepting a commission in any Armed Force Reserve. Mm-hmm. So I could have gone Marine Reserve, I could have gone Army Reserve, I could have gone Air Force Reserve, um, I could have even gone Coast Guard Reserve. Um, I chose to go Naval Reserve. Um, so it was to accept the commission in the Naval Reserve and to sail for a certain number of months per year for a total of four years after graduating from uh, the Merchant Marine Academy. And I also just want to mention for, for anybody that's listening to this that's not quite aware as to why they have a federal academy um, that is supported by your tax dollars um, for what is essentially private service when they get out, because the Merchant Marine are privately owned and operated ships. That's what the Merchant Marine is. But what people don't often realize is that um, 90, 95% plus of all of our imports and exports are either brought to this country or go from this country on ship. So having a qualified merchant marine, men and women who are qualified to sail these vessels, is an extremely important part to our economy overall. And then also the other piece is that in time of national emergency, and as it relates to our national defense, um, if you think about it, we haven't fought a war on our soil here in the United States since arguably the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the conflicts that we've had to deal with have been abroad, and we've, need, we've needed to bring our military personnel to those theaters. And the Navy does not have ships that are capable of transporting um, our soldiers uh, to those theaters. Those are all done on merchant ships. And so this is the reason why there is a federal academy um, that is supported by all of our tax dollars to educate young men and women um, so that we have a viable, competent uh, merchant marine. That's, that's, uh, so anyway. That is quite an education for all of us. And just let me ask one question about that. So those merchant ships that we rely on to move troops around uh, the world are private ships. Am I right? Those merchant ships correct. are yeah. privately owned. But yeah, you're saying is having an academy, you have trained Americans, men and women, that can uh, manage and, and, and run those ships. That's right. So in, in a time of national emergency, unfortunately, we haven't had anything like the scale of a World War II. Um, it, it seems like those theaters are a little bit different these days, but, um, and there's, there's some fortunate to that. But um, in those types of situations, um, there are a tremendous amount of troop movements, and what the federal government does, it has the right to call upon those U.S. flagships to aid in those national emergencies. So they essentially charter those ships. They say, okay, we're taking over, or 
we will, you will continue to run your ship. Your cargo is now our troops, <laughs> and mm-hmm. we will pay you for that. So that's, that's what happens in, uh, in time of national emergency. That's incredible. So uh, move on then to uh, your thinking once you graduated uh, and you took your commission uh, in the Naval Reserve. What, <clears throat> move, move the story forward. What next? Yeah, so I wanted to go to sea. That was, that was what I was trained to do. I was trained to go to sea and to uh, operate as a marine engineer uh, aboard ship. Um, but the industry was very tight uh, when I graduated, and there were no uh, sailing jobs available. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I did, you know, what I, you know, according to my upbringing, again, from both my parents, but primarily my dad, it's like, what's plan B, right? Success is dealing with plan B, as you have said on so many different occasions, and it's so true and so appropriate. Um, so I was able to uh, find a job ashore, um, and so that's kind of the irony of ironies, right? So for the first <laughs> six to eight months of after I graduated, I actually did work one of those nine-to-five jobs, um, which I have to say in hindsight was actually very boring. <laughs> but, um, so your assessment was it, quite right. <laughs> yes. Go ahead. It gave it gave me a paycheck, um, and I was still working in the industry. So I worked as a marine engineer for a uh, company in Roslyn, Virginia, that was doing a lot of government work that was maritime related. Mm-hmm. And I was still every day uh, looking for the possibility of getting employed aboard a ship. And that's where we come full circle on Oxy. Um, they actually uh, had an opening, and uh, because of the great sort of fitness report that I had gotten during my time as a cadet with Occidental Petroleum, and I'm sure Mr. McSweeney put in a good word for me as well. Um, I was able to finally get a job with Oxy um, and um, actually be a um, licensed engineer aboard uh, one of their ships. Mm-hmm. And um, so my sea career was uh, launched at that point, and I went off to sea. That's amazing. We're talking to Dell Lewis Jr., who is uh, an author of a book, Get Your Ship Together, Charting a Course to True Wealth. And when he mentions Oxy, he's talking about Occidental Petroleum. And uh, that was uh, after his 9-to-5 job upon graduation. That's his first maritime job. So uh, how long were you at Oxy, and uh, what happened from that point? I sailed with them for about five years, and... Mm-hmm. Um, Upgraded my license, upgraded from third assistant engineer to second assistant engineer. Um, had a wonderful time, saw more of the world um, with them um, sailing around. And, you know, one of the neat things um, about going to sea is that in the U.S. Merchant Marine, your typical uh, cadence is um, you only work six months out of the year. Um, and um, don't ask me how or why that is. Uh, I wasn't complaining. <laughs> wow. But uh, I worked six months out of the year and had six months paid vacation. And my cadence was basically two months on, two months off. So I would go to sea for roughly 60 days, and then I would come home for roughly 60 days with paid vacation. And um, so I did that for about five years, upgraded my license. And uh, as you can imagine, you know, coming, coming home for um, – uh, two months at a time, paid vacation. There, there were weren't a whole lot of my friends that were in the same situation. So um, <laughs> there wasn't. You know, I was ready to party twenty four seven, but they all had jobs, right? So uh, I got involved in a number of other things, and that's where I really got um, sort of my entrepreneurial bug. I got bit by the entrepreneurial bug, and um, 
it was during one of those vacations uh, that I was approached by one of my younger brothers um, who said, I got a business opportunity for us. And um, I don't know if, how much you want to go down that road, Dad. We can go down that road if you want to. But um, uh, That's the restaurant that, road? That's the restaurant road, exactly. Uh, we, we, may not have the t- we may have to do another episode uh, to, to cover that one. So yep. keep moving. Yep. So, but in general, though, I, um, I, you know, I, I think I've always been, I, I call myself a serial entrepreneur. I have always had an entrepreneurial bent to the things that I do. So even while I was going to see, I was learning about real estate investing. I was learning about stock investing. I was reading all sorts of books and publications. <clears throat> in fact, my mother and I actually formed a real estate partnership, and we, we bought real estate together. Um, and so I was always working on, you know, the next thing that I wanted to do from a business standpoint. And um, it was after being at sea for about five years. And, and I know people are going to think I'm crazy, but, you know, working two months on and having two months off pay vacation can get old after a while. <laughs> um, especially when the work is, is, is as grueling as it is when you're out at sea. I mean, it's just a very, it's, uh, it's a very grueling pace, very rewarding, but, uh, but it takes its toll. So I think I, I was ready to come ashore. Um, and um, when my brother Brian presented the opportunity with me, which we can talk about later, but we went, went ahead and ran with that, and that was one of the first businesses that I had started um, after uh, coming ashore. And then I came ashore permanently, and then life at that point has been uh, a series of uh, different businesses, and uh, one of which is about really about what the book is all about, um, and we can talk about that in a minute if you'd like. Yes, I want to get to that because uh, we're, we're running close to time here, but uh, this has been a fascinating piece. As I said, we may have to come back and do another one, but I do want to get up uh, to close to some things about the book. But I want to go back uh, to our list for our listeners here, particularly young people. One of the things that uh, I wanted to do with podcasts is to educate and to inform and to inspire. And I think uh, listening to your story, I think, is very inspirational, uh, certainly educational and informative. Just think if uh, persons are listening, men and women, boys and girls, think about Del Lewis Jr.'s journey to from Gonzaga High School to the Merchant Marine Academy and and his ability to work in a maritime industry. Think about it, six months working and six months off and you're getting paid and you can do all other other things in life uh so i just wanted our listeners to hear that because i think that's just extraordinary now you'd had a couple of things not only real estate but you went into banking and then you went into uh, your own shipping company and then i want you to talk a little bit about those things and then we can wrap up uh, about why this book sort of puts it all together sure so the 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 long story uh, the short story of a long story about uh, the next uh, chapter was we, we started a restaurant, and my brother Brian and I, who's a phenomenal, uh, extremely talented uh, chef, trained here in the States and also trained abroad in Europe, um, we, we built a, a restaurant. Um, and then when we got out of that business for various reasons, um, sold our interest in that, uh, I decided that what I really wanted to do was to get back into the maritime industry. And um, I had set, I set a vision for myself. And, um, and I'd, I'd just love anybody out there that's listening to this to, to understand what I believe the power of a vision is. 
It's when you can truly articulate to yourself what it is that you want. It's amazing how that can manifest for you. And um, I created for myself exactly what I wanted. I said I wanted to be in the maritime industry, back in the maritime industry, but this time I wanted to be on the ownership side. I wanted to own and operate ships. And at the time, I think I was 27 or 28, and I said, you know, I know I don't have the experience to do that completely by myself. I want to be able to find partners that I can partner with, where I can learn from them, I can contribute to them, and together we can build something unique. And lo and behold, long story short, which um, if you're so inclined to get the book, you can read all about it in the book, um, I did just that. Uh, I found two partners two uh, extraordinary uh, individuals, uh, actually a father and a son. Uh, unfortunately, the father, John Moore Sr., passed away. He left us uh, way too early, uh, but uh, his son, J.J., and I are still great friends. He was best man at my wedding. But long story short, the three of us uh, started a shipping company, Red River Shipping, and that's really what the story of the book is. Um, I, I sort of... I. I tell that story as to how we found each other and how we built um, a very unique uh, shipping company, which we believe, to the best of our knowledge, um, at the time, and may still be true today, but I don't know for sure, but at the time, was the first wholly owned minority company to win a government contract from the Department of Navy's Military Seat of Command. Fantastic. You talk about full circle. Uh, you did not want to be singled out as a minority student. You wanted to be looked at as a student, which is quite understandable. But those universities wanted to have diversity, so that's what they were doing. I'm not trying to defend them, but I know exactly how you think. Uh, but then you ended up through this life chain here of of going to school and learning about uh, ships and uh, ending up owning a company that's a wholly owned minority company. So full circle here. <laughs> Yep, yep, full circle. <laughs> so tell me, uh, why did you want to write such a book, and how does this business of uh, true wealth fit in in our last few minutes here? Tell us about that. Yeah, so it's interesting. It, I, I always wanted to have had um, to have written a book, and it wasn't until I realized that if I want to have written a book, I'm actually going to have to write it. (laughs) (laughs) And as I tell people, you know, in my work these days, as I do my investing work and work with a number of different businesses, I tell people, I always ask them, is this something that you just want done or is it something that you actually want to do because there's a big difference? And that message is pervasive throughout the book, this idea of just wanting it is not enough. You actually have to do something. And I, and I know that you believe in that mantra because um, that's something that you've instilled in, in all of us, uh, me and my three brothers, throughout our lives, and I think it's a big part of the successes that we've been able to have. Um, but I wanted to be able to tell this story. I'd, I'd never really uh, – so in writing a book – I said, what am I going to write about? And I said, this Red River story is just, it's one of those stories of my life that's just so profound to me. Um, And uh, love my partners um, and uh, what we were able to create together. And then I also wanted to um, um, infuse in that this model that I've created about what I call true wealth, because I believe true wealth is about so more than just money. Um, I happen to believe that I'm an extremely wealthy individual, and I also know that there are hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of people that have more money in their bank account than I do. It's not just about money. 
Um, but I can stand before anybody and say that I have tremendous wealth. And it's, and it's when you have this 360-degree view of who you are that you can create what I call true wealth. And so the book not only tells the story of the building of Red River Shipping, but it also interweaves into that my model of, of building true wealth. Well, that's fantastic. And uh, uh, is the book released? When will the book be out? And how can you get a copy? Uh, the book will be out uh, February 12th. So depending upon when this podcast actually airs, um, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit before, maybe right after. But February 12th is the release date for the book, 2020. And uh, we're talking to Del Lewis Jr., uh, who has just written a book that will be out on February 12th, Get Your Ship Together, Charting a Course to True Wealth. And he says true wealth is a lot more than just money. I want to sum up, and then I want to give you the last word. But can I sum up, uh, because this is uh, an educational podcast, an informative podcast, and uh, I hope inspirational as well. And there are a lot of kernels here that I picked up by listening to Dell Lewis. And that is, one, he had a vision. Not only uh, he had a vision for what he wanted to be and what he wanted to do, uh, and he said once you have that vision, you can really sort of make it come to a reality. Another is he, uh, he has a strong sense of self uh, and uh, self-confidence, which comes through uh, in all of the things he talks about. But uh, uh, the foundation here, I'm sure you heard, was a strong educational foundation. His skills base is phenomenal from his uh, early years in school, uh, Catholic schools, to a uh, good Catholic high school, to the Merchant Marine Academy, and to his experiences, that's a solid foundation. And then finally, uh, support of family and friends and mentors, I think, uh, has led to his success. So I think those things came through, Dell, as I listened to you. So could you just give us a few last words, maybe some advice to someone who's listening to this who may want to go into business? And, and by the way, we do have to do another podcast because you missed the whole banking experience that you, that you, uh, <laughs> that you embarked upon as well. So anyway, you have the last word about what you want to share as a highlight here. Well, I, I, there's so many things that I could share and, and would like to share, and I know that we're, uh, we're running out of time. I'll just sum it all up for me about the importance of family. Um, and if you go back and you listen to this podcast or if you listen to it you know, really closely, I think you will see that throughout everything that we've talked about is this strong sense uh, of family. And um, I owe so much, as I said at the outset of this conversation, uh, to my two incredible parents, and, I'm, and again, I don't just say that because my father happens to be interviewing me right now. Um, and the connections, not only, you know, the connections that you had, the connections that mom had, you talk about those types of things. And, and I think what was most important about the family for me was the permission to have a vision. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that anybody that's out there, if you're a young parent, if you're a young grandparent, um, if you're a sibling in a family, um, give those around you the permission to visualize what it is that they want and then be supportive to help them get there because um, my success is such a part of the support uh, that I got uh, from my family, my three brothers, my two parents for our nuclear family, and then we have such a huge extended 
wonderful family that's just been instrumental as well. Well, thank you so much. That was a very, very good summary. And I must say to Dell, he's very, very modest. Not only did he succeed, but he has a wonderful family. He has a spouse that's a businesswoman in her own right. And he has three beautiful kids who uh, uh, are just following in his footsteps of his of their two parents. So uh, he has a family of his own and that uh, that uh, we're so proud of. So thank you so much, Dell. It's been a wonderful interview. You've been listening to Left Right Forward, uh, Dell Lewis Jr., who written a book called Get Your Ship Together, Charting a Course to True Wealth. Thank you so much for joining us, Dale. Thank you. It was a total pleasure to be here. You've been listening to Left, Right, Forward, Business and Political Solutions, and I'm your host, Ambassador Delano Lewis. Until next time, Godspeed. You have been listening to the Left, Right, Forward show, where our mission is to inspire, educate, and inform. Thanks for listening.